Good morning. Welcome to CIA Files Raw File News. I'm Topher M. Ford, and there is Brandon Gibbons. Brandon, how's it going? Ah, pretty good. Pretty good. I mean, the, the news is wild. Uh, I've kind of gotten drawn into watching different Telegram channels about Ukraine and stuff, and it can get a little dark. Um, but yeah, outside of that, right? Because those aren't really like regulated or monitored, are they? It's more, uh, yeah. Not, not I honestly don't know. I mean, not so much. I just know, like, you get on that Ukraine Ministry of Defense, and, and it's helping me practice uh, yeah. Russian and Ukrainian, or trying to read and figure stuff out. But I use the translation button a lot. But yeah, yeah. I haven't gotten too much into following those. Uh, I've followed like a couple of. Uh, local ones or domestic ones but i'm gonna try it out um all right i got my uh my breakfast here it's a red bull sugar free <laughs> i don't uh, yeah and uh so yeah let's let's get into it because we have a ton of news as a matter of fact uh we've got 12 pages of news which means we don't have time for a weird file today um but we'll we'll come back with more of that soon all right um now, now chris if you if you give away <laughs> if you give away the the milk nobody's gonna buy it or something what? about milks and cows because you're talking you're you're plugging you're plugging a drink come on nobody's gonna pay for advertising if you're just gonna start saying <laughs> stuff well we'll get we'll give red bull a little you know a little bump and hope that they uh notice us you should, Red Bull, I would love. Just give me free Red Bull because it, it's. I need it. I desperately need it. Okay, uh, starting off in Tigray, Ethiopia. The Associated Press is reporting that almost two thousand children have died in the past year in the Tigray region of Ethiopia, according to regional surveys. But doctors in the area say that number is likely much higher than the actual death toll. Uh, from the AP, quote, a doctor involved in the study said the true number of child deaths from malnutrition is likely higher as most families are unable to bring their children to health centers because of transportation challenges. Most hunger deaths go unrecorded, he said. Uh, this is him quoting, because we cannot access most areas, we do not know what is happening on the community level, said the doctor who requested anonymity for fear of reprisals. These are simply the deaths we have managed to record in health facilities. The United Nations says that the Ethiopian government has enforced a de facto blockade, although government officials say they've made no effort to target the five and a half million civilians in the region. Despite the Ethiopian government declaring what they call a humanitarian truce, people in the region say very little aid has found its way to the 700,000 people gripped by famine. So I now regret my upbeat. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you usually will. <laughs> kind of it's just kind of how the show goes. Yeah. I think I try to start it that way as like a counterpoint, but it... Uh, well, well this—I yeah. I, you know, not being on the ground, it's hard to tell what's happening with the humanitarian aid and what is blocking it. You know, like um, uh, Somalia uh, during this like Somalian war, there was a lot of problems with the gangs getting the aid. And warlords, I get, remember that. Yeah, 
uh, than using it to maintain power, you know, controlling those resources. So, I, you know, I don't know if that's what's happening here. Um, but, yeah, it's quite unfortunate. And uh, I guess if you want to help, uh, there's Doctors Without Borders. And there's, uh, I don't know that Doctors of the World is there. The big difference between them is Doctors of the World will only go where their security is reasonably um, guaranteed. So, and, you know, they won't pay, pay bribes. Like, you know, like if you are helping in Afghanistan, for, for instance, uh, a lot of times an organization may have to give some group a cut to have access. And um, Doctors of the World refuses to play that game. So that's uh, one of the essential differences. I mean, not to say these other aid groups are corrupt. It's just... Right, doing what, what is required to get where they can be of help. Right. And there seems to be a new one, tdrfund.org, out of Texas. Seems to be kind of new, so that's something that could help. Okay, and we'll have links uh, for these and everything else uh, we discuss on our website, ciafiles.net. You can visit to get those links. Okay, in Yemen, Houthi rebels have agreed to cease the use of child soldiers and to remove all current child soldiers from their forces. The Houthis signed what the UN calls an action plan to make their their forces child-free within the next six months. From ABC News, quote, The UN says nearly 3,500 children have been verified as recruited and deployed in Yemen's civil war. However, a senior Houthi military official told the Associated Press in 2018 that the group had inducted 18,000 child soldiers into its army by then, and former child soldiers told the news cooperative that boys as young as 10 were recruited. At the time, a Houthi military spokesman denied any systemic recruiting of people under 18 and said there were orders to reject children who tried to join up. More than 10,200 children have been killed or maimed in the war, the UN says. It's unclear how many have been combatants. So, meanwhile, much of the war-torn country's population continues to face starvation as the two-month ceasefire allows humanitarian aid to move into the country. Food, fuel, and medical supplies have been making their way to the impoverished areas, but officials say much more aid is needed. Ooh, yeah. So, I mean, it's it, it sounds like things are getting better, but very slowly. And, you know, the damage that's been done to this point is going to take a long time to rebuild. So the and it sounds like this two month ceasefire is maybe a good start, but not nearly enough. Yeah, I mean, they're they're going to need. uh of rebuilding afterwards too. Uh, I don't like. I don't. I don't know if they're going to get it. But you know, like right. Saudi Arabia spending millions of dollars uh, helping fight the Houthis, and it's like, well, whether they win or lose, whatever the the peace settlement is, they're they're going to have a whole lot of children with PTSD, and well, adults with PTSD, and you know, lack of opportunity because of destroyed infrastructure that needs to be rebuilt, and I hope they're not just left alone. 
which is probably what will happen. You know, they're like, oh, there's a peace treaty. Okay, let's walk away now. Yeah. And then people kind of forget about it. Yeah. And then it can erupt. That, that's, that becomes um, extremism fuel. And it's essentially what happened in Afghanistan. You know, like, right. Oh, we, it's a common, it, it seems to be a kind of an old story. Yeah, but we, yeah, we, we like to repeat our mistakes. Yeah, that's a, uh, there's my desultory side, number one, uh, for the day. All right. What's going on in Africa? Uh, outside of, outside of Ethiopia. The country of Mali has denied access to UN investigators after suspected executions of at least 300 civilians allegedly occurred back in March. Human Rights Watch claims that the executions were carried out in the small town of Mora and that it's possible that Russian soldiers participated in the killings. The Mali government says it conducted a military operation to deal with insurgents in the area and that it will perform its own investigation. Uh, from France 24, UN spokesman Sif Magang uh, Magango, excuse me, Unconfirmed sources suggested the death toll could be as high as 500, mostly civilians. Soldiers also reportedly raped, looted, and arbitrarily detained a number of Mora's inhabitants, the statement said. The United Nations mission in Mali said separately on Wednesday that it was concerned by reports of more human rights violations committed by the Malian army, accompanied by a group of foreign military during a weekly market in Hambari, and then in northern Mali on Tuesday. So, yeah, that's from France 24. Meanwhile, the French military says Russian soldiers are attempting to stage mass graves at a Mali military base that the French recently handed over to Mali. French officials claim that satellite images show what appear to be members of the Wagner Group, a Russian mercenary force, burying bodies in the sand. Images of the bodies have been posted online, accusing the French of the killings. Uh, again, from France 24, quote, Several tweets with pictures of the bodies have been posted on accounts that support Russia or fake, new or fake accounts created by Wagner, the official said. The tweets blame the French for the killings and the burials, according to the French officer. One tweet from an account called Dia Diara, allegedly created by Wagner, said, quote, this is what the French left behind when they left the base at Gassi. These are excerpts from a video that was taken after they left. We cannot keep silent about this. Separate from that, a roadside bomb killed the first Russian soldier in Mali on Tuesday, April 19th. Mali officials say the Russian was a military advisor, although many Western officials believe he was another member of the Wagner group. So, and we haven't really, we haven't discussed, uh, what's been going on there yet so that's like three different uh stories <laughs> all kind of crunched in together well um, the, the short version is uh, had like a coup not too long ago and the french have been asked to leave more and more of the uh african nations are saying okay we don't really we don't really want the french here you know they're fighting islamicist and it's not quite working, so we're tired of you, and you're telling us what we can and can't do. It's neo-colonialism. Oh, get on out of here. And so uh, the French are leaving, but the, the Russians are coming in. So uh, a lot of them are asking, 
you know, it's like, well, we do need foreign help. And the Russians are like, ah, well, we, you need something blown up. You need something secured. We've got the people that can do it. And so, yeah, so a lot of the French influence is being replaced by Russians. And uh, Russia's had a fairly good relationship with many African countries for a long time, like uh, Ethiopia. I mean, they were kind of like uh, buddies for a while. I met a, a guy that was an uh, Ethiopian admiral, or he said he was an admiral, and uh, he went to, he was uh, a Russian, though. Uh, he had gone to Russia for training and stayed. I'm like, Ethiopia has a navy? I guess Mongolia has a navy, and they're both laying rock. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Anyway, they they have a connection, and I think it kind of goes into the the Russians don't necessarily mess with the politics as much, and so the the people in power kind of like it. And when I watch when I watch the Chinese um, uh, network in French, a lot of the comments are from West Africans and North Africans. So I was curious, like who who's watching this? And it's like, oh, oh, those guys. Because they, you know, they want to hear the the Chinese Russian perspective. And um, we haven't really talked yet about the Wagner Group. Um, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's, I mean, kind of like Russia's answer to to Blackwater, Greystone slash Greystone, and it's uh, let me see. They called him Putin's caterer, the fellow that started it. Um, I think he he provided food for the military or something or got wealthy off of food contracts. And then they he started this private military group. Now, part of it is the Russian military itself is not a pleasant place to, to work for. Very few soldiers will stay more than like five years. And so they don't really have a NCO Corps that's very stable. And so their experience, so, and there's a lot of bullying and corruption and just abuse. And so, yeah, it's not really some place people want to make their career. But Wagner, it's a military organization, and they pay fairly well, especially by Russian standards. So if somebody does a three- or four-year military stint, they can go join the Wagner group. And these are your experienced soldiers that are motivated because they're paid fairly well by the standards and then they can be sent to do things and they're still technically not part of the Russian military. You know, same thing right. like the US with our with our private military organizations. Right. And maybe in some cases not as well regulated or monitored. I don't know that ours are regulated and monitored I mean. very well. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, I'm talking about them too, like in, in broad <laughs> sense that private security forces seem to tend to get away with stuff that the regular military might not get away with. Uh, well, it also goes to that theme I'm ta talking about where states can't act. So now private citizens are, are you know, like doing cyber warfare and raising money to fight wars and right you know which can complicate things i was just reading <laughs> about russia you know there were two uh british soldiers who were captured in in ukraine and 
the British take is, oh, they're just, you know, like they were basically Ukrainian. They just happen to be British citizens and they're over there on their own. And Russia's like, we don't believe you. We're pretty sure that they work for you and you're sending them over there to fight, you know? So yeah, the whole uh, lone gunman thing or the, you know, motivated private citizens thing can get tricky, I guess. Oh yeah. Uh, and so, then the, uh, uh, is it is it state sponsored terrorism? And well, if uh, what was it? World, don't forget, World War One was started by um, uh, a terrorist with a government sympathetic to his ideals. Uh, the Serbian fellow that assassinated the Archduke. It wasn't right. it wasn't state sponsored terrorism. I mean, it was a terrorist who acting alone. Well, I mean, he had his little cell, his organization, but yeah, private individuals. Right. I think alone can can sometimes create international incidents. Yeah. And then there's this issue with uh, the French accusing Russian soldiers of trying to stage these mass graves. Uh, yeah, that, that's highly effective because um, I've been reading more and more about the Russian media and the echo chamber they have. And something like 80% of people get their information from Russian television. I mean, there is an internet element, but um, even that's like heavily kind of censored and monitored. And um, everything it comes through this lens of, look at, look at the, these French people who are murdering people. And we're trying to do a humanitarian, like in Ukraine, we're trying to do a humanitarian corridor. We support humanitarian corridors, but... The Ukrainians won't allow it. They keep they keep messing it up. And you know, when we assembled a group of people together, Ukrainians attacked them so that they would be forced to stay. And and people believe it because that's what their trusted news sources are telling them over and over again. Right. And, and if it's the only story that you hear, yeah, it's, it's uh, kind of, you know like why wouldn't you? Yeah, and they they can't understand like why why are these Americans and British people supporting these Nazis? Obviously, they're all fascists because here are these horrible Ukrainians killing their own people and torturing their own people, and and they staged a bunch of bodies in in uh, uh, Buka or Bucha or you know I mean right. where, where they, these mass graves have been found. It's like they're they're the ones doing that and staging that. And of course, the French caught these guys red-handed. They got the <laughs> the, the pictures before and after. Yeah. Uh, all right. Um, speaking of uh, Russia, China's Union Pay declines to work with Russian banks. Uh, Chinese credit card processor Union Pay has decided to cut ties with Russian banks in fear of sanctions from the West. Russia's largest commercial bank, Sberbank, is among those cut off from Union Pay. This comes after Visa and Mastercard severed dealings with Russian banks, and this is Union Pay is. Um, you know, a, I guess like a semi-private company. Um, it's like the that, Chinese version of Visa. Right. Um, and so it's like the Chinese government has stated support for Russia, but the, but union pay is scared of Western sanctions. So they backed off. Yeah. Um, that's pretty interesting. Cause yeah, I thought they, the union pay would be like, oh, okay. And it's like, well, you know, I mean, it annoys Russia, the sanction, but in the end, 
at the end of the day, they'll get around it because I had a union pay card when I had a Chinese bank account. And when I came back to the U.S., I could pull money out. You know, it didn't have the Visa logo or anything, but it worked. And so it's like, yeah, all right. But I've met someone here in Kazakhstan with a, a severe bank account, and he's having trouble. He's like, they, I can go to the bank and get my money out, but my cards don't work anymore. I was like, oh, well, um, I guess you better pick a Kazakh bank now. Yes. <laughs> yeah, like, no, it's silly. <laughs> and then um, sticking with China. Um, tensions continue to rise over Taiwan as a prominent former editor of a major Chinese news outlet tells Chinese citizens to prepare for a military struggle against the United States. Uh, this is from Newsweek, quote, uh, as the situation in the Taiwan Strait deteriorates, we must prepare for a military struggle, who wrote, urging Chinese citizens to be ready to face major challenges and hardships. Some people complained the country's response was soft, said Hu. In my view, the situation across the Taiwan Strait is like the calm before the, before the storm. The real tipping point may not be far away. He went on to say, It's not about whether the public should feel a sense of urgency. Rather, when the country resolves to take decisive action, we must be mentally prepared to face the challenges and uncertainties that lie before us together with the country in a united way, he argued. Uh, Hu Zhizhen served as editor-in-chief of the state-run Global Times until he retired last year. His article comes after U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham, along with other U.S. officials, recently visited Taiwan's capital, a move that was strongly denounced by Chinese military officials. And then, of course, uh, not that long ago before that, Nancy Pelosi also visited Taiwan. So they're not liking the U.S. cozying up to Taiwan. Yeah, I, some of that might have been a, a indirect message to China to say like, well, if you help uh, Russia too much, we're really not afraid to tit for tat on this. So, right. But I mean, that's just my guess, really. Um, the likelihood of war, I mean, I, war, war will always find a way. Whether or not this one's going to be pretty soon, I don't know. I thought it was love will find a way. Nah, war will always find a way. Uh, that's, yeah. I think it might have been Clausewitz that said that. <laughs> it, it it certainly yeah we thought we had world peace out. well people keep saying this all like oh this in 2000 you know 22 oh wow what's happening it's like we are really not that much different than people 50 years ago 100 years ago we think you know oh we're becoming more peaceful it's like no war will always find a way yeah we just have better bombs now Speaking of better bombs, <laughs> uh, last week, Russia successfully tested its new Sarmat intercontinental ballistic missile. Russian President Vladimir Putin announced on Russian television, quote, I congratulate you on the successful launch of the Sarmat intercontinental ballistic missile. This truly unique weapon will strengthen the combat potential of our armed forces, reliably ensure the security of Russia from external threats, and make those who, in the, in the heat of aggressive rhetoric, try to threaten our country think twice. 
Uh, each new missile, which has been in development for years, could carry at least 10 warheads and employs new technology to avoid missile defense systems. News of the test was no surprise, as Russia informed the U.S. of its intentions per the 2011 New START Treaty, and Pentagon officials say the missile isn't a threat to the West. While the test wasn't a surprise, the timing is almost certainly meant as a show of force as Russia's war on Ukraine continues. From Al Jazeera, quote, The head of the Russian State Aerospace Agency called the launch in northern Russia a present to NATO. Igor, uh, Igor Korotchenko, let me do that again, Igor Korotchenko, editor-in-chief of Russia's National Defense Magazine, told RIA news agency it was a signal to the West that Moscow was capable of meeting out, quote, crushing retribution that will put an end to the history of any country that has encroached on the security of Russia and its people. So I'll say that when it comes to, like, threatening rhetoric, Russia's, they, they're the best. <laughs> <laughs> they are the best at, you know, at talking the talk. But so this, like I said in there, in that, this isn't new. We've known about the development of this missile for a long time, but it's certainly, you know, like I'm sure that the, the timing of the test is, uh, you know, very intentional. Right. Yeah, well, there's just, yeah, kind of letting everyone know, well, NATO, if you join in, you can expect these. And you might win the war, but all those pretty historic buildings are going to be blown up. Yeah. Uh, We're not which, afraid to kill everyone. Uh, well, that's, um, what was it, the German pres president, his, um, he, he's being a bit of a fool by blinking. Like he's admitted... Or said, oh, well, you know, I'm worried about escalating in a nuclear confrontation. And it's like, well, don't say that because now he knows to threaten it. Now he knows if he'll back down. And it's like, come on, you know, tell, tell, tell him what you're afraid of. Talk about telegraphing your weak spot. Yeah. Yeah, because it's not like no one knows that you don't want nuclear conflict everyone knows that you don't have to go around saying it yeah reinforcing well, it so i'm willing to give you anything you want because i'm afraid that you might um, use nuclear weapons and even though we would probably come out on top with that uh, it would be bad for well it would be bad it would be horrible but you're still letting the other person know that just the threat itself has great power over you and Diplomatically speaking, that's 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 not a wise move. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's kind of like if you know you're worried you're going to have to fight somebody, and you say, "I will fight you, but uh, you don't pick up that baseball bat that's sitting next to you." <laughs> I'd re I'd really rather you didn't use that bat. <laughs> what this bat? Yeah, that bat right yeah. there. Oh, <laughs> don't. Yeah. Don't swing it at your head or your knees. Right, please. Which one, yes, which one do you do not want me to swing it at? I'd rather you not hit me with uh, the bat in either spot, please. Uh, and if you, I guess, since you have the bat now, I might just not fight you, maybe. 
Um, all right. So it also looks like uh, uh, Russia's security forces are there. The FSB is cleaning house, uh, supposedly. Uh, Ukrainian intelligence is reporting that Russia has arrested another pro-Russian separatist leader in the Donbass region as their invasion continues to stall. This is from Business Insider, quote, Ukrainian intelligence said the arrest was part of a cleaning out of leadership of the LPR that serves as a testament to Moscow's inability to follow through with goals set by the current leaders of the LPR in terms of waging war on Ukraine. The arrest, the Ukrainian defense ministry said, was met with negative backlash from the breakaway state of Luhansk People's Republic's power structure and political leadership who see it as a beginning to a change in the organization of power within the quasi-state. Ukraine's intelligence reports have not yet been verified. Um, but it, according to this anyway, it sounds like the, uh, you know, the separatist government is maybe just now starting to pick up on the fact that Russia intends to have them as a puppet government. <laughs> Although, like yeah, the, I mean, the, the idea is to absorb them eventually. Uh, and I don't know that there's that much of a secret about that. Um, but yeah, the original breakaway guys, the militia leaders, um, a lot of them have died in mysterious assassinations. And, you know, the Russians blame the Ukrainians, but the Ukrainians were like, no, we would have owned it. It wasn't us. And, um, but yeah, these guys were problematic in that they were, well, some of them were fascists themselves, like openly um, neo-Nazis. And so the, the Russians trying to keep their image a little clean was like, well, we don't right. want them and we don't want them in the leadership position, but also you want to put your own people in charge. Right. But they served their purpose in helping to spark the situation of, you know, the separatist movement. Yeah. So. And once they're, once they were no longer useful, <laughs> they were no longer useful. Right. Uh, speaking of no longer useful, uh, two cases of murder-suicide involving prominent former Russian figures and their families happened at near the same time, leaving many wondering if the separate incidents are connected. Vladislav Aviev, a former Russian official and former vice president of Russian bank Gazprombank, I think I'm saying that right, was found in his Moscow apartment dead of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot along with the bodies of his wife and 13-year-old daughter who had also been shot. The next day, Sergei Protosinya, a former deputy chairman of Russian nat natural gas company Novatech, was found hanged in the garden of his Spanish mansion and his wife and 18-year-old daughter were found stabbed to death inside. Spanish news outlet El Punta Vui, I'm sorry, how do you say that? Uh, I think it's Catalan, actually. But um, well, that was the name of the that was the name of the website where I got yeah. this quote from this report. Um, either way, <laughs> Spanish news outlet El Punta Vui reports inconsistencies in the death of Protosinia that may suggest someone else was involved in the killings. Quote: Although the mother and daughter were stabbed and stabbed according to all indications as they slept, and that there was much blood on the stage, the hanging man had no blood stains. 
Investigators collected evidence that baffled them on the floor of their mother's room. Bloodstained socks deduced that the killer had put on gloves so as not to stain or leave marks on the axe and knife weapons of crime, which they found in the same room. And I apologize. That's via, you know, the original article was in Spanish and that's via Google translate. So there may have been some things lost in translation, but you know, in both cases, all of the present evidence said murder suicide, <laughs> but it is weird that these two things happened like one after the other immediately. And I don't, I doubt they're the only ones. I think there have been a number of, of oligarchs or influential people that have met untimely ends. And, you know, it's like, hey, Putin, if I was going to, if I were going to commit suicide, you'd tell me, right? <laughs> you know, or <laughs> uh, but uh, maybe the FSB uh, cleaning house still it could be that. Um, or it could be these are loyalists and there's, there's an internal FSB civil war, which I kind of think that's happening because of probably like our next story, that chemical plant fire. Right. It, what, so what would be the, the impetus for that? If there was like the, a division opening up like that? I mean, my, my guess would be within, within the elite. I mean, the elite really don't have that much say over Putin. Um, so that's one of the reasons I think that this, the murders themselves might not be a result of that, but, where it would be is, you know, well, Putin does have some level of support and gets some sense of legitimacy from the people around him and, you know, those that are benefiting from his rule and quite wealthy. And if you were part of the FSB that thought Putin was destroying the country and wanted to remove him, you would start by removing the people that support Putin. If not, because removing them actually helps you and weakens Putin, but to make Putin afraid and more likely to make a mistake. Um, so it's kind of a long game issue. Uh, yeah. But I mean, again, I don't. I was like, I don't know. This could be this could be FSB, you know, killing people that maybe were going to defect with secrets, or maybe you know, kind of going to go over to the western side. Or maybe it was a counter FSB. We don't, I don't know enough about these individuals themselves. And they also, they seem to be retired. And so that's telling right. me they know where the bodies are buried. And that might, which makes me think it would be Putin's crew to get rid of them. Um, and as opposed to someone trying to remove Putin. Because, yeah, I mean, if they're former deputy chairman and former vice president, that's more, they're more dangerous than what they know. Right. And I just, yesterday I was watching some different BBC stories and one of them was an interview with a former Russian oligarch who he played a key role in helping Putin come to power in the nineties. And uh, at some point he fled and he made some points like, he made the point that um, he said that he didn't think the term oligarch was necessarily that accurate to call these people because 
calling them an, an oligarch implies that they have some sort of political power in Russia, when the truth is they have no political power that Putin holds all the political power, but that the purpose that they serve is through their, you know, their business contacts, they're able to try to influence the West to help Putin. So as a, they're, as opposed to influencing the government, they're tools of the government. Right, Russia. right. The, um, well, yeah, where that differs a little bit from the history is I saw a speech by an intel analyst that compared them to boyars historically, boyars, or, um, and you, know, you had the czar, and then there was this lower level nobility called the boyars that could be appointed to different posts. And uh, there was, you know, just like with any kind of feudal society, the, the pushback between the king and the other nobility. And at the end of the day in Russia, it ended up becoming very top down. And but being with a boyer, there were certain uh, benefits such as allowed corruption. But there were two rules with the allowed corruption, depending upon your rank within the job you were given, you had limits on how much you could steal. So you can't steal too much. And you also can't steal from the wrong person. So right. <laughs> it was like, and so the oligarchs, it's kind of like the new version of those guys. But yeah, adding the connection to the West is definitely another element. Yeah. And then uh, you mentioned, you just mentioned this um, chemical plant fire. In the Russian city of Tver, a fire at a top-secret research facility has left at least 11 dead and 24 injured. Russian news agency TASS says the fire, which occurred Thursday, April 21st, was caused by faulty wiring, and Russian military will conduct an investigation. Um, well, there was another a chemical plant fire, too, that made propellant, like for like missiles and stuff. And it caught fire. Um, so it was like both of them within 24 hours. That's what makes it really, really weird. But yeah, and it, supposedly this place develops uh, missile defense systems and possibly works on um, missile production as well. You know, it's hard to know since it's a, a, a top secret facility. Right. But it's... It's definitely military related, yeah. and so you. What what makes you think that this might be con like, might be connected to a potential, you know, theoretical split in the FSB? Well, I mean, who knew? Who knew where the um, uh, this research facility was, and who knew which particular chemical plant held these you know was making propellant and it just seems like it had to be an inside job and i just think the fsb would be the only ones that could pull it off uh, i mean maybe ukraine intelligence did maybe they you know they had connections but even then they would have had uh, i think they would have had to have connections within the fsb someone would have had to tell them where it was right so they they've got in so if it's not an internal 
like um, schism within the FSB, then it's likely FSB officers who have been turned to the Ukrainian side. Or maybe it was faulty wiring. Yeah, well, it's just a simple. I'm trying to find the simplest solution, and the faulty wiring to me is is not the simplest solution. It's, yeah, that's and, yeah, uh, and, especially that, two at the same time. And there was um, a dam broke too. Like um, oh, I didn't see that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's in Krasnovodor, Kroz, close to there. I was reading. Well, the the gates were open, and uh, there's great flooding, and it's like, well, I think I saw that on like the um, some Russian Telegram channels. I'm on. I was like, well, this is a weird coincidence too. Now, that's of course that's not a a great military disaster, but it it's still a complication. And um, it's like, man, this is a lot of a lot of what appears to be sabotage occurring at once. Right. Yeah. It's just like those uh, retired oligarchs uh very coincidental oh yeah yeah i mean all of it's been very <laughs> it's like very like very close very coincidental yes uh just like i'm sure these uh russian double tap missile strikes are coincidental um moving on to the next story yeah. uh, and uh i tried to segue i tried um, you know, he's been doing pretty good with it before. I was kind of surprised. Like, oh, these have been pretty good segues. You're surprised? You think I'm? Oh, well, you got like two or three in a row. That's true. I'll take it as a compliment. I don't yeah, know why I have to turn rehearsed, so. into a. I don't know why I have to turn everything into a personal attack. It's because I'm a sensitive man, you know. Anyway, thank you for the compliment. Uh, reports from Ukraine say Russian forces are conducting double-tap strikes in the Ukrainian city of Kharkiv. Double-tap strikes occur when a location is bombed once, then bombed again soon after, after first responders move in to provide medical aid to the victims. Double-tap strikes are considered a violation of international law. Uh, this is from the Australian Broadcasting Company, quote, in route through downtown Kharkiv, missiles struck a building just blocks ahead of the Red Cross team, sending out a cloud of black smoke. The ABC joined them as they found a man and woman bleeding on the ground, surrounded by shattered glass. The Red Cross team gave first aid while soldiers and paramedics arrived, but then several deafening roars signaled a second round of shelling. Other double-top strikes have been recorded in Ukraine, killing scores of civilians and medical personnel. So this is a pretty dirty trick. Um, yeah. Uh, and it's it's also sadly pretty common. I mean, the U.S. has been guilty of it under Obama uh, and probably under Trump as well and others. You know, well, I say Obama. I'm sure he's not the only one, but he caught uh, some flack for it uh, with the CIA performing double tap strikes in Afghanistan, I think, on places like weddings and funerals. Oh. Um, so, but not to say that that, you know, that that makes it okay for the Russians to do it. It's whoever's doing it. It's a terrible thing to do. You should know. be called out. Yeah, it's like it's one thing to bomb a military target. It's another thing altogether to bomb medical personnel, you know, 
Well, if you've got these like escalating, it's like, okay, I'm bombing a military target. All right, well, I'm bombing an apartment complex. I'm double tapping the apartment complex. Right. <laughs> There's like gradually making it worse. Yeah. And I guess, I guess the, you know, the quote unquote ideal situation when you're, when you're talking about war is that the, uh, the attacking military is trying to destroy strategic structures as opposed to necessarily killing people. Um, but then again, you know, there's no genuine ideal situation when it comes to war. So, yeah. Well, uh, we'll move on here to uh, Ukraine uh, the, getting more military aid. The United States and President Biden is sending Ukraine another round of military aid in the form of attack helicopters, heavy artillery, armored vehicles, and Phoenix Ghost drones, which are similar to Switchblade drones that were included in the previous aid package, uh, as well as lots of helmets, body armor, ammunition, and the package also includes close to 200,000 howitzer rounds, which I can't remember where, I, I think it was in a BBC article, but I read somewhere that 200,000 howitzer rounds should last them maybe four weeks, which is crazy to me. <laughs> that's, that's, you know, what, like 50,000 howitzer rounds a week? You know, <laughs> yeah, yep. Well, I think you're supposed to have about five thousand a day. I think, uh, I think you need about five thousand a day. Wow, that's. I mean, you know, I've n I've never been in the military. I've never been involved in armed conflict, so I don't know. But that you know, as a soft fat American, safely ensconced from violence, that sounds like a lot to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, this comes as Sec U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin are set to visit Kiev. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres will also visit Kiev, but not until visiting Moscow first. President Vladimir Zelensky, Zelensky criticized the Secretary General's decision to Moscow, saying, or the Secretary General's decision to visit Moscow first, saying there is no, there is, quote, no justice and no logic to the move. Ukraine's Air Force is also growing, although U.S. officials won't say where the new air aircraft are coming from. On Tuesday, April 19th, Pentagon spokesman John Kirby told reporters at a press conference, quote, some nations have provided spare parts so that they can get they're inoperable tanks, operable again, again, and I would say on the same on aircraft. I mean, they have received support to get some of their fixed wing aircraft, you know, more operable again. So, I mean, look, the proof's in the pudding there. I mean, they right now have available to them more fixed wing fighter aircraft than they did two weeks ago. And that's not by accident. That's because other nations who have experience with those kind of aircraft have been able to help them get get more aircraft up and running. So, yeah, um, well, yeah, send them the spare parts, and they probably right. have like um, 
whole bunch of like uh, aircraft that are not you know, maybe missing a, one or two systems. And all right, there we go. <laughs> now they're up and running. Right. Yeah, because that was what what they've been saying is the, the U.S. has not been sending them fighter jets and bombers, you know, directly, but they have been sending them parts. So, of course, they could also be sending the entire airplane in parts. <laughs> yeah. Although, what what's the difference then if, you know, like we're openly giving them attack helicopters and drones and, you know, heavy artillery, why would we be coy about sending them fighter planes? Yeah, yeah. I, I honestly don't know why we, we would be. I think the party line is being fearful of escalation, but I don't know how sending them um, to, was it, 200,000 rounds and howitzers is any less of an es escalation. Right. <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, Russia has taken control of much of the southeastern regions of Ukraine, although pockets of resistance continue to stall Russian efforts in Maripol. Russia's siege of Maripol continues as a Russian general declares intentions beyond Russia's original claims. From Reuters, quote, Russian General Rustam Minikayev on fr Friday said Moscow wanted control of the whole southern, the whole of southern Ukraine, comments ukraine said indicated russia had wider goals than its declared aim of demilitarizing and denazifying the country i told you at the very <laughs> beginning of this i told you their plan was uh, was the first donbass and luhansk the entire region and um next uh, land bridge to crimea and next um land bridge to um transnista and once we saw that map, I was like, oh, they want to take Moldova too. So <laughs> I was like, ha ha. Right. And I wonder if, you know, they're not more, they're not feeling more compelled to do that after, you know, their attacks on the northern regions uh, near Ukrainian capital failed, you know. And they well, if they pull can pull out. it off, they could say all of that was done on purpose. We meant to fail because it was a big distraction. While right, the Ukrainians to, to, were all there, we were running through the south. Well, and I guess that makes sense, too. That tracks if you're like, we're going to attack. We don't intend to take the capital, but if we're attacking it, then they're forced to, you know, spend a lot of their resources defending that part yeah. of the well, country. We, they can intend to take the capital, but the real mission is a distraction. If right. they so happen to get it, they so happen to get it, but <laughs> it fits creates a distraction that's the the big point and pulls on pulls the force but i think it, it half worked like the original lines and the and donbass really haven't moved that much it was uh, like those fortifications they're they're they've been holding pretty strong but the non-fortified south and um kind of north of that region was um not as well fortified so the russians were able to push in a lot more quickly. Um, yeah, now they've got to justify all that death. And so they'll they'll switch the story. They'll start saying, well, we're now what we want to do is um, we're at a war against uh, NATO. We're fighting NATO and 
that might lay off the denazification a little bit and start saying we're liberating the South for um, Russia. And um, then slowly change the story to like, we never wanted to, to well, actually, when they've always said they didn't want to get rid of Zelensky. They didn't want regime change. That was always their claim. And so they can reiterate that and say, but what we do want is all the South part, Nova Russia. And, you know, they have a historical claim. It's just those sorts of claims should be handled diplomatically and not by invasion and bombing children and sending kids off to Vladivostok or in the Far East or families away. Um, but because of that historical claim, I imagine that's what they're going to play up in the press. And so that's probably how they're going to try to negotiate peace. And that will also be what I predict their party line in the next few months is to say, we want peace. We just want to liberate our people that we've already liberated. And Ukraine is refusing to compromise. They're refusing to give any land. They're the ones being stubborn. We just want peace now. We just want to keep right. what we've got. And we want to, we're just trying to liberate these people. And, oh man, the Ukrainians, they're just, they're just not being reasonable. They, right. And then <laughs> at the same time, like the section that you know the donbas region and crimea that's a huge like manufacturing center like that whole part of the country is really valuable yeah, well it, it has a lot to of coal to too so it's yeah it's really important and they both want it so ukraine has motivation to resist giving that up and from what i understand too the holdout Ukrainian soldiers there are, you know, the ones who've been there for a long time fighting the separatists. So they're really well-seasoned soldiers. And they've been holding out, you know, like hold up in a steel plant that Russia oh, has in Maripol, yeah. <laughs> in Maripol, yes. Sorry. And from what I understand, their main aim there has been to try to provide cover for ukrainian citizens to get out of the area because i don't think they have any hope of actually reclaiming maripol anytime soon i could if be they wrong, can but... hold out for about three months which i don't know i don't know how they can but if they can manage that i think there's a chance that um ukrainians can do a counterattack and push out they probably need another they probably need the Ukrainians. They're training a lot of reserves, um, like all those foreigners that showed up and all of their reservists who came out. And, you know, it's taking a two to three months to train them and, you know, moving to full mobilization. And I, they should have uh, like maybe 100 to 200,000 new soldiers within two months. And then all that equipment from the, from the, the Americans and everyone. Right, and, which also takes time to train Ukrainian soldiers on how to use. Yeah, and the they're eating up the Russians with these. Well, one of the things that I I found like cleverly, like so simplistic but brilliant, is uh, they call them octocopters, but it's a type of drone with eight propellers. It's kind of big. They have them yeah. with not, night vision and some kind of thing like. A grip that drops a grenade 
And so they have these anti-tank grenades. And it's like playing a game. They're, they're just flying these things over the Russians at night and dropping grenades on their on their cars and tanks and blowing them up. And, I mean, it's, it's cheap and it's brilliant. Uh, it's highly effective. So, yeah, one of the BBC stories I saw was showing um, Ukrainian forces who were dug in outside of Kiev to, you know, like maintain security there were using just like civilian drones, like the ones that you could go, anybody could buy off the internet to scout and like, you know, like locate and monitor Russian defenses. And it's like, oh, that's, it makes me want to get a, yeah, it makes me want to get a drone and learn (laughs) how to fly it. Not that I'm going to have to scout russian forces or anything but well speaking of like spying and stuff i think we might jump a story but there's that app that the ukrainian military is putting out right an app called dia i think that's how you say it uh d-i-i-a was launched in 2020 to provide its citizens a direct line of communication with the ukrainian government and it's now being used to provide intelligence on russian troop movements throughout the country During the Russian invasion, citizens have been providing Ukrainian forces with military intelligence through apps like Telegram, but a new feature within DIA called eAnemy makes the process easier while confirming that the information is valid. From Business Insider, quote, Ukrainian officials are also hoping the app will be a resource to document war crimes occurring within the country. After Russian soldiers reportedly massacred 400 civilians in Bukha, Ukraine's head of the Ministry of Digital Transformation, Mikhailo Fedorov, encouraged witnesses or sources that knew information about the perpetrators of the massacre or other possible war crimes to use the app to report on it. And the app also helps to filter out misinformation or disinformation from Russian bots. So, yeah, mm-hmm. cell phones are are being, you know, like, they're playing a large role in, in uh, this conflict. It's, it's uh, pretty it, interesting to see. Well, it also gives me hope that they're going to actually be able to catch the war criminals, you know, like the, the rapists and, and just plain murderers. And they actually face justice. I mean, it, it gives me hope of that. But that's yet to be seen. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> We'll I mean, see. People have been pretty brazen in documenting the stuff they're doing. So there's no cure for the internet. Yeah. Uh, and then speaking of war crimes, is Russia planning to conscript Ukrainian civilians? Uh, Ukrainian intelligence says it fears Russia will begin conscripting Ukrainian citizens from occupied regions to fight in the war. From CNN, quote, The statement said under Article 51 of the Fourth Geneva Convention, occupying powers cannot compel protected persons, which in this context includes civilians in occupied territories, to serve in its armed or auxiliary forces. Additionally, pressure or propaganda aimed to secure volunteers to enlist is not allowed. So, I mean, from what I've read, this is something that Russia did in the past, you know, like in 2014 when they annexed Crimea, you know. Yeah, I don't know that this is going to work out for them. 
it makes me think of the American uh, Revolution when the British, they, they took back South Carolina and part of the little peace treaty was the American forces would put down their arms and you know promise not to take up arms against England again. And a lot of them like, okay, okay, fine, I'll, I'll take the oath. Um, but then like a year later, the um, British general was like, okay, well, we need, you know, there are some patriots acting up, especially in North Carolina. So come on, guys, you got to get your gun and join the militia and we're going to go fight the patriots up there. And a lot of them were like, no, I mean, I said I'd put my gun down, but I didn't say I would fight other Americans. Um, and those guys ended up then joining the Patriot cause, you know, reneging on their oath and saying, well, you know, if you're going to make me fight, then nah, I, I rescind my oath and I'll go fight with the Americans. And so they kind of the British kind of shot themselves in the foot on that one. They ended up creating an American army when they were trying to draft one um that that might happen here uh i don't know but i know if i were a russian officer i wouldn't want to be leading these guys i wouldn't sleep very well <laughs> you know, over a, a coerced group from an occupied territory you know? right and especially um from what we've seen about ukrainians who are not agreeable when it comes to being forced to do things yeah so yeah well this um, is, well go ahead. is it is it is it this like a against the geneva convention or something right and yeah and that's what that that uh one selection was that i i read about yeah it's yeah, the Geneva Convention. The protected. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's also the whole well genocide. What was it? The definition of genocide, Article Two, Section E, forcibly transferring children of the group to another. And there's been talk of like the Ukrainians from that area being sent out and moved to the far east or moved just away from Ukraine. And there was, we mentioned last week, adopting the adoptions. Right. Like, oh, we're going to speed up and adopt them out. So uh, we've gotten a couple of, uh, like the, the stack of war crimes are adding up. Right. And I don't know, like, how often do we see war crimes actually prosecuted? It seems like whenever we do see it happen, it's it's only consequences are only uh seen from like relatively small dictators in small countries um it's yeah it's it's uh it's difficult it does seem to really happen uh, i think like how would you be able to prosecute these war crimes against russia which is you know a, a major world power who also has the support of china you know would china participate in trying to prosecute them or are they going well, to oh yeah well yeah for for these guys to be prosecuted one the ukrainians would have to win um i think and it would probably have to involve the collapse of the russian state um to one that actually does care about rule of law um you know or liberal democracy and rule of law and otherwise these guys will be sheltered yeah 
but you know they might have arrest warrants out for them. They travel abroad. Uh, if they are captured as prisoners of war in Ukraine, they don't. You know the Ukrainians identify them. Then they're probably not going to be exchanged. They could face their trial then. Um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, perhaps I'm being overly optimistic that the Russian state will lose its autocratic stance and be willing to allow the subpoena of its um, citizens. Having yeah. said that, I don't think we in the U.S. do that. There was like a big to do because um, some U.S. soldiers accused of war crimes, and the U.S. government's like, "No, we're not gonna, we're not gonna let our right. soldiers be tried by a foreign court." So, right. Um, like how many U.S. presidents have committed things that would be considered war crimes? Uh, I think it's most of them, you know, right. at least in modern history, since the concept of uh, international war crime was instituted. I think all it's all of that uh, was perjury. <laughs> That's all that they did. <laughs> there was a, their, like, their crimes were perjury. So they say. <laughs> yeah. Um, we wanted to talk a little bit, too, about the conversation that's been going around here in you know, like the United States and in the West among, among people about, you know, what our involvement should be. Uh, I found this, um, this exchange on Twitter between uh, actress and author Kate Willett, or Willett, uh, I'm not sure, and uh, Robert Evans, who's the host of uh, the podcast Behind the Bastards, and it could happen here and worst year ever, a bunch of things. Uh, Kate Willett tweeted, if someone has a flag in their bio to mean they have compassion for the people of Ukraine, no problem there. But most people are using it to imply support for military intervention that could lead to nuclear war. I support diplomatic solutions that save lives. And then Robert Evans, who I should note here, has he's been a war reporter, so he spent time in Baghdad and Syria and in Ukraine in 2014. He's been in the middle of fighting uh, several times, and he is not shy about his take on dealing with dictators. He responded, Kate, what is the diplomatic solution to someone shooting your mother in the face? And she wrote, Probably the same diplomatic solution that will eventually be reached after many, many more innocent lives are lost. And he, then he responded, doesn't seem like you have any idea of how that solution can be reached while Russian soldiers are massacring civilians. So, yeah, and we're seeing this response of, you know, like trepidation and let's stay out of this from the left, you know, um, and uh, I don't really understand it, I guess. I I mean, I understand them arguing against direct military intervention, like the U.S. putting troops on the ground there. Um, but I, it's like, are these people complaining about us sending weapons? You know? And uh, I think a lot of the people that uh, are repeating this whole... Oh, let's not uh, escalate things. I mean, that's that's the Russian state line, and they're just repeating it because the Russians have done a very good job of advancing their propaganda. And yeah, 
oh, what was it? The the Communist Party historically they uh, they use the peace movement to their own advantage. And, you know, they call them useful idiots. So, but there are all kinds of useful idiots. I know the you know, like the conservatives do like to point out the peace protester types, but there were plenty of conservative useful idiots as well. And as we can see now, there's some of them have their own um, news networks or news stations where they repeat Kremlin talking points um, to great profit. Uh, but yeah, essentially a useful idiot is just somebody that probably maybe even means well, but they are... Uh, repeating the party line and advocating for for something in a way uh, that will benefit the Russian state. So in this case, oh, don't escalate things because not escalating is allowing them to uh, continue the war and then make people feel badly for defending themselves. You know, it's like the you know the spousal abuse or something. Like, oh, I shouldn't have made him angry. What did you do to make him angry? Oh, and he hit me. After he hit you, he hit you again. What did you do to make him even more angry? And, you well, you don't want to escalate things. And it's like, well, that's what a, a sane person wants, peace. But when you're dealing with someone that is a, a narcissist or uses violence and manipulation to get what they want, you can't use peaceful negotiation. Like, if... They wanted peaceful negotiation for these territories. They could have gone that route. They could have formally requested for, you know, hey, Crimea, they should be allowed to do a referendum. Donbass, Luhansk, they should have an open referendum. And Russia has enough power and, you know, pull. They could probably have pulled that off or guilted Ukraine into it. Or they didn't have to go the invasion route and then make people feel guilty and now they're trying to make people feel guilty for trying to fight fire well they're fighting fire with fire but still sometimes eh, that's how you that's how you can uh, it's a controlled burn sometimes you got to yeah. do a controlled burn and what i keep seeing this and i've seen this come up a lot in conversations like with far left people um the idea that uh, NATO involvement led to this situation, which is something that I don't understand. And I say that I don't understand it uh, just based out of pure ignorance that I'm not too familiar with that history. But uh, well, that, how well, that, NATO... yeah, well, the idea was that um, NATO expanding made Russia scared because NATO was essentially a defensive group to protect against um, the Soviets. Uh, but then when the Soviet Union collapsed, NATO expanded. And, you know, they took in the Baltic states. And the Russian claim is, oh, you're surrounding us. And it plays into this narrative that the Russian media has that we're surrounded. Everybody are enemies. And they want to destroy us. Uh, they keep getting closer with their guns and their weapons. and uh, But they're, they're playing the victim card. And again, it's, it's a type of manipulation. The, oh, everybody's just picking at us, and and we're just we're just minding our own business, and that kind of goes back to that whole weapons will only escalate things. Where when the leftists are advocating that that idea, it's just programmed about the idea of America being the aggressor, and the United States is not completely innocent, but they kinda, some of these these 
people. It's just like anything somebody does that annoys the U.S. or that is a power that counters the U.S., by just default, we should give them the benefit of the doubt. And it's like, right. no. And these are the people who, <laughs> who like defend Bashar al-Assad or Kim Jong-un, you know, but say, oh, no, those guys are pretty cool, actually. You're just... <laughs> It's no. like, you know, I, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's right. Um, I don't I mean, yeah, the U.S. has done tons of terrible things. I get that. Yes. And the U.S. has maintained this like military hegemony around the world. That doesn't make what Assad did to his own people. OK, that doesn't make Kim Jong Un a cool guy, you know, <laughs> Uh, you can hold both ideas as true, <laughs> you know? I, yeah. Yeah. But I think we've talked about this whole NATO thing and, you know, I, I in some sense feel a little badly for giving it too much credit or too much credence or, or taking it too seriously um, because it's just a Russian distraction point. Well, like what thing, what historically, what has NATO actually done like what military actions have they been involved in uh, afghanistan and um because uh, they considered they did you know considering that an attack on a member and um they did it, some kind of business in libya involved nato forces right? oh right they were yes the nato was involved with that and it, from my understanding that was a bit of a debacle um, yeah, and that I've heard critics say that they, them. yeah, that they, I've, I've heard critics say that they, they went in to take out, um, Gaddafi. And then after Gaddafi was out, they just kind of dipped out, you know, without helping to reestablish the situation. They and did so, a, yeah. they did a no fly zone in Bosnia. Um, uh, blockade uh, and peacekeeping forces in Bosnia. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, Afghanistan. Uh, they did some relief efforts in Pakistan. <laughs> uh, they went after the pirates in Somalia. And uh, Libya was a no-fly zone. All right, so, um, yeah, that was pretty much what, what they did. There was a no-fly zone to protect civilians. Um, let's see. And they've been trying to help protect Turkey from Syrian missiles, should some come. And so how much of that has been, has led to messes? You know what I mean? Like, I've heard people say, like, when has NATO ever done something good uh i would say bosnia was pretty good it's probably our one of our few examples of a just intervention it, it may not have so i mean that that might heat back up but there's at least been some level of peace from it and stabilization um yeah peacekeeping force in kosovo you know that's helpful um if you would say they did something wrong, maybe they 
Maybe they took the U.S.'s word too much for Afghanistan, maybe? Yeah. Because there was that whole thing but, where they asked for evidence that Osama bin Laden had done the crimes, and George Bush was like, no, we're not going to give that. And so, right. they're, they're, you know, I think there's some reasonable questions as to the true legality or, you know. Some, or, some valid criticisms, but is any of that given any uh, reason to believe that NATO would um, like take the offensive that yeah. Russia should be concerned that NATO would invade them yeah, without no. Russia doing anything first. Yeah, so, no, I don't know. see anything in there that would imply that at all. <laughs> but looking know, at the list of NATO missions that have occurred, because so NATO is um, like a, it's like a, a a defense alliance, right? From all the different countries who are saying like, if you attack one of us, then we've got this collective force that will move in to answer that attack. Yeah, an attack on one is an attack on all. And so that would imply to me that if. Putin has been scared that NATO would attack them. That's because he has intentions to do things that would provoke that response. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, but, oh, NATO sounds so scary. Military alliance. Ooh, it's like the Axis. Oh, no. And they're, they're surrounding us and they're out to get us. And, and oh, poor us. We're the victims. So, uh, that, I mean, that's the narrative. And. Um, I mean, I feel badly even talking about it because it gives it some level of credence, but I guess it has to be talked about. Uh, it's like NATO simultaneously not doing anything good and simultaneously being a horrible threat to Russia. It's like, what? <laughs> yeah. And has this, this, you know, this narrative that Ukrainians are overrun with Nazis, you know, is that still strong is that still a strong narrative oh yeah 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 it's still i mean they might be trying to back off of it a little bit i mean outside of russia you know uh, i i don't know that i've seen it being repeated as much uh yeah i actually i think i did see it come again um i think jacobin put it out again about oh they're they still have a nazi problem and it's still a thing and it's like, well, there are more Nazis in the Italian government than in the Ukrainian government. But, you know, um, uh, Russia's got their Nazis, too. It, again, it's a distraction. It's like, OK, yeah, there are a couple of like fascists there. It's bad. Nazis are everywhere. Yeah. They're like, yeah. you know, mold. But the Ukrainians are like taking measures to, to do things about it, which is what makes it even you know, like Which is more, more than what we argument. can say about uh, United States law enforcement and military. <laughs> well, so the FBI will catch people sometimes. You'll hear the FBI has been pretty forthcoming about, oh, we've got a little problem with this and we've got a problem. Well, that's why I say that we've seen the report that there's a problem. I just, I personally, I guess I will say uh, that I haven't seen much of as far as a response. I see some. But from what I can see anyway, which admittedly, you know, I'm not privy to everything that the FBI is doing, but it well, I mean, seems to be falling short. 
a lot of that is separation of power because like cities make and counties make their own police forces and the FBI can go around telling everyone, uh, there are a bunch of like fascists that are infiltrating local police departments. And it's really up to the local governments and the states to do something about it. I mean, right. You know, it's like, guys, clean up your own police forces. And they're like, nah, we don't, you know, if they don't want to, they don't want to. Right. Because if the um, chief of police is also a Nazi, then he's not going to see a problem with it. Yeah. I mean, they, or if they don't want to, you know, um, if they're like, well, we don't really want to draw attention to this. So we don't want to believe it. You get right. that too. Uh, if I, hey, ask no questions, be told no lies. You know, if, uh, it's like, I'm not, I'm just not going to ask these, these officers what those tattoos are about. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's a cool tattoo. All of you white guys have this identical and in the same place. That's interesting. <laughs> uh, oh, you're all going to a meeting together. Okay. Yes. Well, I mean, the, the other side of it is if the, we have this top down law enforcement, then that's also a road to tyranny. So it's like we could have, you know, hundreds of little police departments and have a percentage of those that are, you know, heavily infiltrated by, fascist or we can have you know the police being policed by central well actually i'm creating a false dichotomy but the worry is then if you create a centralized group of the police policing the police then well what if those guys become fascist you get a slippery slope yeah 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 but i, I think i think we, we should have some sort of um oversight even if it's a civilian commission, but then that gets tricky too, because like, well, what does a civilian really know about being a police officer in certain situations? But it's at the it, same time, you'd say that the civilians being policed should have a say in how the law enforcement is run. Yeah. Yeah. Because so, they are involved in the equation. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, they, they they should have a say. I'm just saying, like, if we're actually doing like a um, like a kind of trial of an event, you you know, well, I think you should get definitely get input from civilians. But you know, it, it's kind of hard. It would be like a, a doctor does surgery on me, and I should have some level of say because you know it's my body. But I probably shouldn't critique his. I shouldn't be the one critiquing his technique. But other doctors should be allowed to say, uh, that guy, that guy committed, you know, malpractice. Right. You know? Well, what's funny about that analogy is that people do have that much uh, say in their medical, <laughs> yeah. in their, their medical care. You absolutely could tell a doctor no, you know. Well, um, yeah, you could say no to treatment. But what, what I'm saying is if I'm doing a cycle. They're not going to tell them how to. Right, right, right. It's like, we need this person arrested. Or you have the drunk driver that needs to be taken in. Or there's the murderer, and then they must be, they're, the, they're in this house, and we got to get them. Like, uh, not being a trained police officer, I think uh, I would be remiss to judge them when things go down. I think other police officers perhaps could and should. But at the same right. time, that often doesn't work out because, you know, there's an implicit bias. Right. You know, and 
what we keep seeing here in the United States with that is that, you know, the police officers will close ranks if mistakes are made. And so it's incredibly difficult to hold them accountable when they do when they do make mistakes. So I don't know. I think that, um, you know, like we've seen some progress with that, like in the the uh, wake of um, Breonna Taylor and how no-knock warrants were outlawed there and uh, supposedly, you know, police in Minnesota are banned from, you know, putting knees on people's necks after George Floyd. So it's, it's not a, it's not a simple issue to deal with, but there do seem to be some things that seem fairly obvious, you know, I would say independent investigations, independent oversight. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was uh, was it in, in China? It's kind of ironic because it's authoritarian, but in some ways you feel a lot freer because there aren't that many people that can arrest you. You know, it's like in the U.S. you can like get arrested by almost anybody but a mall cop. Um, but uh, oh, you're driving too fast. Oh, oh you're going in. But yeah, in, in China, the police—it's like they barely have the power to give you a ticket. It seems, and people yell at them and disrespect them uh, they don't have guns or I've ne- i never saw one with a gun and uh, but there are police that can arrest you and there are police with guns but it's like the police officer that saw you commit the crime would have to call the other police officer who's armed to come in and get you so it's it's kind of interesting that way that is interesting all right. Well, that's the uh, that's the news for this week. Like I said, it, we had a lot to cover this time, and we still didn't cover it all. There's lots of stories that we had to uh, kind of skip over for time's sake. And um, oh, just to let you guys know, we have another project in the works, and uh, I won't go into too much detail yet. But I will say that. Our second project is going to be covering uh, actions here in the United States. Um, we'll have more information on that as we, you know, develop that and get closer to our release date. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, and as usual, you can uh, find all the information from today's show on our website, ciafiles.net. You can follow us on the socials. At, you know, facebook.com slash CIA files, uh, Instagram.com slash CIA files on Twitter at CIA files podcast. And, um, you know, if you go to the website, um, we'll include links if you want to, uh, you know, help out, um, some of the, the different groups we've mentioned. And if you feel extra generous you've got some extra dollars to throw in there uh we've got our buy me a coffee link if you want to support the show and our patreon and uh our merch there are links to all of that at ciafiles.net anyway uh and either way thanks for listening and we'll be back soon have a good week <laughs>